Good morning, Pillar family and friends. Today we conclude our Be Still series. Together we've learned what it looks like to be still before our Father, not just in good times, but in in bad times as well, in seasons of chaos, calamity, or pain. We've learned about being still and waiting on God. We've learned to be still and to not be fretting, not to be a fretful people. Last week, Kyle walked us through what it looks like to be still and to be confident in Christ. Uh, Kyle and Sarah, great stuff last week. I really appreciate the work, uh, the time you invested um, to share that with our church family. Thank you. So this week, we wrap our series with this, th- with this focus, be still and be rejoicing. Be still and be rejoicing. Rejoicing, simply explained, is what we do or say to express our joy. Now, each of us rejoices uniquely. God's created us each uniquely, and so joy finds its way out of us in unique expressions as well. Some of you sing. Some of you sing more when you're joyful. Um, Some of you dance. You dance more when you're joyful. Some of you laugh, just get giddy, you get excited. Uh, Some of you talk. I mean, like more than you normally talk when you're joyful. Um, Maybe you post publicly. Some of you, you write, and so you write more. You write songs, you write poems, you write short stories to express your joy. Um, Man, joy finds a way. Joy always finds a way out. It will be expressed, and while we express it in some common ways, we'll express it uniquely as well. But as surely as the sun rises every morning, even though it really hasn't risen a whole lot, it seems, here in Okinawa this past week, it's been cold and gray. But as surely as the sun rises every day, joy finds a way out. It will be expressed. Um, So what is joy? Um, I think of joy this way. Joy is gladness of heart, like basically joy is gladness of heart, but it's mixed with a soul-stirring confidence and a soul-stilling peace. So joy is gladness of heart mixed with confidence and peace that is both soul-stirring and soul-stilling, right? It's calming, but it's, it's invigorating at the same time. Now, this kind of true lasting joy is not generated from within, I don't have it in and of myself. I can't give it to myself. I can't generate it. It's given to us by Jesus. I mean, essentially, that's what Jesus said in John 15, 11. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, my joy, he said, may be in you. And Jesus is talking about giving us something we don't have, his joy that he, he places in us. So these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, if you're familiar with that chapter, you know the context is where Jesus is talking about how he is the vine and we are the branches, uh, a metaphor to remind us that in and of ourselves, we, we don't have what we need. And so he encourages, encourages us in that conversation to remain in him or to abide in him, to be still. It's the same language as being still, to be still so that we can receive from him what we don't have. And in this case, that's joy. But let's be honest, we live in a broken world, and our own hearts have a brokenness about them. So none of us, even those who have received this gift of joy from Jesus, have ever experienced joy in its purest form. None of us have known a joy that is unstained from all the brokenness, all the sorrow, which abounds in our world and in our own lives. 
David Mathis says it this way. He says, Our joy rarely escapes the burden of regular sorrows, some of them great. Man, isn't that the truth? Now, I, I learned that lesson from my mom as a young child uh, at, at mealtimes, right? Uh, mealtimes are a joyful occasion for kids, mostly, but my plates were always mixed with joy and sorrow because I would, mom would set the plate down and I'd have an awesome main dish like a grilled cheese sandwich or um, SpaghettiOs or ravioli or some classic 80s, 90s meal. But there's my joy, but then she always had to slam a veggie down right next to it. And there's my sorrow. Like joy was always mixed with sorrow. I learned that lesson from mom. Thanks, mom. And sometimes I just learned like life can just be sorrowful. Like uh, sometimes mealtime was this thing called tuna pee wiggle, kind of a weird family tradition, but Google it, it's a thing. And so not only is life um, this combination of joy mixed with sorrow, sometimes it's just straight up sorrowful. Did you know, though, that our father never calls us to fake joy until we obtain joy. There's no faking it until we make it in our Father's family. That, that is an anti-gospel idea. We don't fake it until we make it in our Father's family. In our Father's family, you don't have to fake joy. And too many of us, though, have experienced a form of Christianity which pressured us to act, um, to act perfectly and to act perfectly happy. But the gospel sets us free from this false way of living. And here's the truth. Our joy this side of Jesus' return, um, and when he returns, he's going to fix all the broken things. But our joy this side of his return, when he does fix all of those broken things, it will rarely escape the burden of regular sorrows like David Mathis says. You know, the Apostle Paul was honest about this. He said in 2 Corinthians, he described himself this way, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So let's join Paul this morning in this gospel-shaped honesty. Let's just acknowledge up front that our joy will always be mingled with sorrow, even when we are practicing being still and waiting on God. But though this is true, Paul says God's kids are always rejoicing. Even in the deepest sorrow, God's family has an abiding joy. In the darkest of sorrows, God's family is still a rejoicing family. So our question then becomes, what do we do to cultivate joy and keep on rejoicing when we are really feeling that sorrow mixed in? Or what do we do to cultivate joy and keep on rejoicing when sorrow is really all that we feel? A guy named Samuel Rutherford learned to answer this question from personal experience, painful personal experience. Both of Samuel's children died in infancy. His young wife died, too, after suffering for 13 months from a distressing and lingering disease that she just couldn't shake. So his two infants die, his wife dies, and Samuel himself suffered from oppressive seasons of dark depression. You know what he said about joy, the pursuit of rejoicing? He said this, he said, "'When I am in the cellar of affliction,' I look for the Lord's choicest wines. And man, he, he spent long seasons in the cellar of affliction. And so this is what he learned. When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. So two things here. Notice his honesty. 
Uh, notice the honesty that we've seen every week in the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms that we've explored have people writing them who talk about their lives falling apart and falling into the sea. They talk about being surrounded by enemies. They, they talk about not being okay. They're honest about their sorrows. The gospel gives us that permission. But there's something else in Samuel's statement and in the Psalms here, and it's a fight for joy. I mean, that's what Samuel means when he says, in the cellar of affliction, I'm looking for the Lord's choicest wines. I'm fighting to see reasons for joy and to be rejoicing. And our Psalm for today, Psalm 47, helps us do that, to, to do just that. It helps us to look for the Lord's choicest wine. So let's read that together. This is Psalm 41, beginning in verse 1. It says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, so sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So we already have this foundation, this foundational command of being still. That's what we've been exploring over the last several weeks. And now on top of that command, we're, we receive this idea of rejoicing. So it builds on the command of being still. Be still and be rejoicing. We saw that language all over the first, uh, the first verse and in verse number six, clap your hands, shout to God, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. That right there, that is the language of rejoicing. That is, that is giving voice to our joy. Now, as God's family, we are to rejoice in all seasons, not just the good seasons. This command does not ignore our sorrow. Rather, it embraces our sorrow. In fact, this command is for the very people who, are, who we see spotlighted in Psalm 37 and Psalm 46 and other places, the very people who are saying, man, evil's being done to me and my world is falling apart. This is for them. So uh, this command from our Father doesn't ignore our sorrow, rather it embraces it. So why? So there's the command. We are to be a rejoicing people and the Father gives us this joy. So Here's the question, why should we be a rejoicing people in all seasons? Uh, now here is re really where we do the hard work of looking for the choicest wine. What, what's the reason? Well, we see that primary reason in verse 2 and again in verse 7. Verse 2 goes like this, We are to be a rejoicing people because the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. And then again in verse 7, We are to be a rejoicing people because... Our God is the king of all the earth. And so we are commanded, we are encouraged, we are invited to sing praises to him. So here's why we should be a rejoicing people. In our calamity, in our chaos, in our pain, Jesus is still king. Other things feel really high over me right now when seasons are dark. My enemies feel big and high over me. The chaos, the calamity, the pain. But the reality is, the psalmist is saying, Jesus is, in his own words, the most high. He's higher than all of those other things. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's better. He's more enduring. He is God. He is king over all the earth. 
So he is to be feared, not calamity, not the chaos around us, not my pain, and not my enemies, not COVID, not conspiracy theories, not the real or perceived loss of civil liberties, not the delay of my PCS, not the chaos that surrounds my orders or the lack of orders, not extensions in Okinawa, not being separated from family, not any of these things. Jesus is to be feared. He is God over all of these. And the Bible tells us if we reorient our heart this way, it will be a fountain of life to us every day. That's what Proverbs says. It says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. So when we live in the fear of who God is over us as king over all the earth, our hearts are set free from what they would otherwise be enslaved to in fear. On the other hand, Proverbs also says that the fear of man lays a snare. So if our fear is not oriented on Christ, but our circumstances, we will find our hearts entrapped day in and day out. But whoever trusts in the Lord, Proverbs says, is safe. So listen, the psalm is saying that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Most High. He is King over all the earth. And now listen, the fact that he's King is not necessarily good news for anybody, right? Because kings can be good. Well, kings can be bad. They can be really bad. But the Psalms remind us here that Jesus is not just the King. He is a great King. He's really, really good to us. He is kind to us in ways we don't deserve, and he has withheld judgment from us in so many ways that we don't deserve. We know his kindness, and we know his mercy. He's a good king. And look in these verses at how he uses his kingly authority and power for our good, right? Because these are the choicest wines that we're supposed to be looking for. We see at least four, four ways that he uses his kingly authority and power for our good, In verses 3 to 5, we read that he subdued, he chose, he loves, and he has gone up. Uh, So let's start with subdued. He had subdued the the enemies uh, for those who are singing here in the psalm. These were very real enemies that they faced. But guys, Jesus has subdued our enemies too. This is a past tense word. He subdued Satan at the cross. He subdued death when he defeated death in the grave. Jesus subdues my own heart, which is really my greatest enemy. He he subdues it through the power of the gospel. And Jesus subdues the enemies that are around me. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus subdues my enemies. The really good news of the gospel is my greatest enemy is my own heart, and Jesus subdues that enemy too. So Jesus subdued our enemies. Jesus has chosen a heritage for us. That word heritage in verse 4 means inheritance. That means that Jesus made us his family. Uh, the, the Father has made us full family. He's written us into his will. And we, we, we learn about that will, um, that inheritance, if you will, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So he subdued our enemies. He's written us into the family will. We're full family, and he loves us. That's what it says here. He loves us. Um, Richard Sibbs has said this. He said, every Christian may truly say that God loves me better than I actually love myself. So here's a question. Why does a perfect God love his deeply flawed people? Oh, we get a clue from Deuteronomy 7 where he actually tells his people, listen, 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that I set my love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Here's why I love you, he says. It is because the Lord loves you. That's it. That's simply, I chose to love you. So, so let's that, ask that about ourselves. Why does our Father love us? Well, the answer is not because we are lovable people. The Father loves us, the Son loves us, the Spirit loves us because, and He loves us with an undying, never giving up, never quitting kind of love. And you know why? Simply because He chose to, because He is love and He chose to set that love, that affection upon us. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He, he loves us because He has made that choice to love us. And guess what? Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can take that away from me. I can't take it away from myself. The Father is, 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 is God over me. Jesus is king over me, and he's chosen to set his love on me. It also says that he's gone up with a shout, the sound of a, trump, a trumpet. That language is um, it's announcement of victory on behalf of God's people. That's what's going on in this psalm. And that's what's going on in the gospel for us. That is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of victory, uh, Jesus securing that victory on our behalf. And so the gospel says that Jesus has gone up with a shout on behalf of all of his people. It's done. The work of our rescue is accomplished. There's nothing left for us to do. It's a gift we receive by faith. So Jesus subdues our enemies. He's chosen our heritage for us. We're in the family. He loves us. And he has gone up with a shout. He has accomplished victory on our behalf. And then we get this reminder in verses 8 and 9 that our good king is not weak. He's sovereign over all. So it's okay that I am not in control. It's okay that you're not in control because Jesus is. It's okay right now that it feels like people with evil intent may be in control. If you feel that way, it's okay. They're actually not in control. They're just not. Jesus is in control. Jesus' purposes cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. He will redeem all the brokenness for his glory and for the good of his people. Verse 8 says that God reigns over the nations. Who reigns over the nations? God does. The nations don't reign. God sits on his holy throne. That's a statement of authority. Who has all the authority? God does. Verse 9, the princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. Everything in this world belongs to him. He is highly exalted. So guys, listen, we're looking for the choicest wine in the cellar of affliction. Jesus is the Lord's choicest wine. That's what Jesus said. He said, whoever believes in me will never thirst. That's John 6.35. But if Jesus said that, if he said, whoever believes in me will never thirst, why then are we so thirsty so often? Like, why is my joy fading? Shouldn't I be joyful? Why is my joy gone? Shouldn't it just always be there and be this constant thing? Why is my soul so thirsty if I've believed? Well, notice in John 6, 35, Jesus links belief with, with thirst. And it's not just a one-time belief, it's an ongoing belief. So belief is both initial, like I believe in Jesus for the first time, but it's ongoing, it's daily. And so we need to, we need to see this, that when I am not still, when I'm not practicing stillness and waiting on God, when I'm not trusting Him, when my confidence is not in Him, when I'm not rejoicing in Him, when I'm not still, I'm actually not believing Jesus, and so my soul will be thirsty. Uh, but 
we drink from him as we are still. Remember, we saw that verse in Psalm 46. It said, there is a river whose streams make glad the people of God. So when we're still and we're drinking in from Jesus in his presence, our hearts are being made glad. That's what Psalm 33 says. Psalm 33 verse 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So what the psalm writer is saying is when we trust Jesus, when we are still before him, when we wait, he makes our hearts glad. He gives us joy. And then rejoicing flows out of our mouths. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. He said, fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. So being still and receiving that gladness from him, being still strengthens my soul before I find myself in the cellar of affliction. It prepares me for those dark seasons. Being still also sustains my soul when I find myself in the cellar of affliction. Being still before my father helps me stay in difficult seasons, right? We want to rush out of them, but being still Anchoring my confidence in Christ actually helps me stay in difficult seasons. I don't need out to be joyful. I just need Jesus now, even in those dark seasons. And being still centers our confidence on Christ, giving us joy and giving voice to our joy in good seasons and in the hard seasons as well. So listen, guys, all through scripture, we see this. We see that we are created for being still. That's our natural pre-rebellion created posture. So when I'm not being still before the Lord, when I don't wait, I have to see it for what it is. It's an act of rebellion against my creator and my king. And so that leaves me with two alternatives, really, two choices. One, I'm still a rebel in need of rescue. I've never been still and I've never waited on, on Jesus. I've not believed the gospel and I just need to straight up repent for the first time and then begin learning how to be still on Christ. That's a possibility. Or I have been rescued. I have initially believed the gospel, but this is a it's a sign of a, when I am not being still, when I'm not joyful, that there is a serious remaining rebel tendency in me and I need help. And that remaining rebel tendency is, I don't practice being still on my God. I practice being still on myself. And so that's what I see in me. I don't, I don't know if you see that in, in you uh, when you think about your own life, but we each have so many deep-rooted rebel tendencies that remain even after Jesus has rescued us, and he's rooting those tendencies out. But this is one for sure for me, and, and maybe it is for you. And so we need to learn to ask questions like this. Is my joy or rejoicing in all seasons non-existent or weak? Is my joy in difficult seasons non-existent or weak? And if it is, I need to look to my practice of being still because if there's no joy in my life, if I'm not rejoicing, I'm probably not being still. And we can ask this, is my practice of being still weak? 
And if my practice of being still is weak or non-existent, I don't need to look any further than my belief in Jesus. Listen, Jesus calls us to daily believe in him, to trust, to be still, to wait, and to rejoice. But here's our tendency. I believe in me, or I believe in you. You believe in yourself. We believe in our circumstances. And so our souls remain thirsty. We disbelieve his goodness. We disbelieve his kindness. We disbelieve his justice. And so our souls remain thirsty day in and day out. Guys, the aim of this sermon is not to be or do better. The aim of this sermon is to point us to Jesus as the only one who is able to rescue and restore our hearts, as the only one who is able to give and restore joy. The aim of the sermon is to lead us to um, not resolve to do better, but to repent of our rebellion and to begin practicing being still before Jesus and waiting on him because he alone gives and restores our joy. Guys, the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus was perfectly still on my behalf, and with joy he submitted to the Father's will so that rebels like you and me, who don't ever be still, rebels like you and me could be rescued, restored, and slowly renewed in spite of our tendency not to be still and wait on him. We are all adopted in former rebels, sons and daughters now, and we're being kept by Jesus We're not kept because we're really good at being sons and daughters who are still. We're not. We're really not good at it at all. We're kept because Jesus was perfect in our place. Thomas Brooks, in closing, used a different picture to make the same point as Samuel Rutherford. Uh, Thomas Brooks says, It's not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It's not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Guys, listen, Jesus is the flower. Nothing else, not the end of COVID, not getting our liberty back, not PCS, not getting my orders, no, nothing. No one else is the flower. Jesus is the flower. He alone will make your heart sweet. And he can make your heart sweet even in these dark and bitter seasons. And so the gospel encouragement to us today is to abide for a time upon Jesus daily, to be still and to know that he is God, to trust him and trust that he will act. I'm joined now by uh, Grant Ellis, a man who doesn't need an introduction to most of you. Uh, Grant is one of our elders, and uh, you've basically lived in, uh, in Okinawa long enough to have you get like born and raised here with the amount of time <laughs> you put in. Yeah, <laughs> almost. Uh, he's been here way longer, way longer than I have. But if you're new to our church family or you're, you're so new that you've not really gathered with us uh, because of this whole COVID thing, you've probably heard Grant's voice as he leads us um, in singing. Normally you'd see his face. He'd be up front <clears throat> and leading us in worship as a family. But yeah, so thanks for, thanks for joining yeah. me now, Grant. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just wanted to kind of ask some questions about the sermon and uh, questions that you guys can ask of your MCs or your family unit, um, just some things to reflect on what, uh, John, what you spoke about. Um, so you kind of opened up your sermon uh, talk with um, a story about Samuel Rutherford. And as you were talking about that um, and just kind of the, 
the life situations um, that he was in and the heartache that he had just reminded me of um, a song that we actually sang last week, um, It Is Well With My Soul, and mm. Horatio Spafford and Philip yeah. Bliss. Um, but the story behind that song, if like people don't know, Horatio Spafford, uh, he was a lawyer in Chicago, um, and in the, the great fire of like 1871, um, his, his son died during that fire. Yeah. Um, and then just a few months later, uh, he'd, he was planning a trip to Europe with his family and uh, ended up not being able to go. And so he sent his family, his four daughters and his wife, on ahead. And on that voyage, the, their, their ship collided with another ship and then sank, and his four daughters died. So yeah. now this, this man, his son has died, his four daughters has died, and so he continues on. He's like, I'm going to go to Europe to go console my wife. Uh, gets on a boat and starts traveling to Europe, and as he's passing mm -hmm. the point where the boat had sunk, um, he pins the lyrics to, it is well with my soul. Um, and it, the, the words are, if you don't know, um, when peace like a river attend my way, uh, when sorrows like mm. sea billows roll. So whether things are, are happy or when there's sorrow, yeah. um, whatever my lot, mm. thou hast taught me to say, yeah. it is well with my soul. Yeah. Uh, and so I just was reminded by that story um, at the beginning of this with your Samuel Rutherford yeah. kind of. I know, and I think it's, I'm glad you brought that song up and that story because when you, when you hear the story and you sing the song and you know, when you know the background story, it's so counterintuitive mm. that he would say words like this. Yeah. And even even like preparing the sermon, reading these psalms and thinking about the Samuel Rutherford quote, um, it, it doesn't make sense outside of the gospel. Yeah. And it's not it's not something that would come naturally to us at, at all. all. So I like that he wrote into his hymn lines that um, God has taught me to say. Because yeah. it's it's not something that we would say if we've not <laughs> if been, we taught, been taught. No, yeah, that's... not at all. I mean, when sorrows like sea billows roll, you've taught me to be to be at peace, to yeah. be well, to be rejoicing. No way. Yeah. Like not, that's it's no not way. within us. Nope. Yeah. Without nope. the gospel. That's right. Uh, and Jesus' hand yeah. on us. Um, so one question I just wanted to ask the MCs: um, What's something that's caused you to rejoice in God this week? Uh, whether it's a, a verse, a song, um, any uh, like a meeting with a friend. Maybe you were able to meet during COVID. Like, was there something in particular that allowed you or just reminded you to rejoice in God this week? Uh, and so, John, was there something this week? Yeah, I mean, there was. I, I mean, I'll just reach back to last week, too, though, because my family and I took a vacation, and uh, Kyle filled in for me last week on the video. But it was just a really good week. So we had plans for months to go somewhere and do something. And so those plans kind of got... It, it turned into a staycation, which we also call ROM, I guess. So <laughs> we, just, we just put ourselves on ROM, uh, restriction of movement. But it was just it was a really sweet week and um, just a lot of restful time at home with the family. And so thankful, even in seasons like this, that God gives us rest. That was good. But yeah, this week, I think I've just been reminded a number of times how thankful I am for our own church family, just um, really for the entire church family, the way that people are caring for each other and leaning in rather than out. And uh, yeah, I'm just really thankful to be a part yeah. of this family. That's yep. good. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask, so you had uh, talked about uh, Jonathan Edwards. You gave a quote. I love me some Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. <laughs> you know, old dead theologians. I don't right. know, you know what it is, but um, you you had quoted Jonathan Edwards that said, "The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls mm. can be satisfied." Yeah. Uh, can you expound on that? Like, what what does that mean to you? And and MCs, I kick this around. Like to you, what does that mean? You know that the enjoyment of God it's the only happiness 
which we can be satisfied, really. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of hard to wrestle with, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but so so God has created us for with this desire in our hearts that is impossible to satisfy outside of himself. And so kind of the storyline of our rebellion is us trying to find meaning or satisfaction or joy apart from God. And so what we do, the, the, the things or the people that we, we try to find that joy in or satisfaction, they're not bad. They're, mm. they're good gifts that God has created. Yeah. Our problem is when we elevate those good gifts to ultimate, ultimate gifts, like yeah. to God's place, yeah. and say, well, I'm going to find my satisfaction in you. And really, ultimately, what's going to happen, like you see this play out in marriages, you see it play out in career, you see it play out all the time, mm. your expectations are just going to be dashed, like you will yeah. be crushed. Or you will be so consumed by that thing that you will be your soul will be destroyed and you almost don't even you know don't even it, know, right? Yeah. Because we're substituting God out for lesser lesser gods, if you want to say it that way. So yeah, there's just because we're created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, there is within our hearts this longing for joy and meaning and purpose that just cannot be met mm. outside of God. I think that's what Jonathan was yeah. getting at. And I think we see that play out in our lives. Yeah, on a daily I like basis. how you yeah. you put it that we take a good thing, you know, and make it ultimate. We yeah. take the good thing, we make it a God thing. Yeah. I think uh, in our rebellion, in our um, running away, and just our rebel tendencies, we, we don't normally always see that. That there is something that we've put in place of God. It's like, um, can't remember, maybe Mark Driscoll calls it a, a functional Savior. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not the actual Savior. Right. Uh, there's a functional Savior that we're looking to, to, to satisfy us, yeah. but in the end, it, it really is just going to destroy us. Um, and it really does, uh, like you said in the sermon, it, it all boils down to, uh, it's just disbelief, really, like disbelief in how good God is, yeah. uh, the work of Christ on the cross. It's just disbelief, and we may not be able to articulate it that right. way, but it, that's really what it kind of boils down to. Yeah. Um, and so in light of that, uh, the disbelief, like you talked about repentance Mm. Which is easier, repenting yeah. or rejoicing? Because yeah. I think a lot of times it's just like truly rejoicing because we can always put a, a mask on or a face and right. be like, I'm rejoicing, right. but really deep down inside I'm hurting. Right. Um, yeah. When I should probably be repenting mm. just of my disbelief that God, I don't believe God is good. I don't believe God can take care of me. So I'm going to run to this thing that I think will mm. um, which is easier for you, yeah, like wow. repenting or rejoicing? I don't know. You made me answer the other question. Maybe you go first on this one. <laughs> uh, for me, <laughs> I would say uh, neither. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, uh, they're not. Uh, they're not easy. Yeah. Re- repenting is hard because it, it comes comes to a place where you you realize yeah. uh, your disbelief. You right. realize your rebel tendencies yeah. and. Um, and you have to admit wrong. Nobody, you have to, wants, nobody, nobody wants, wants to do wrong, that. Right? You, yeah. you have to come to that point where, yeah. where God has broken you down, or yeah. you, you've just broken down, and you finally realize it's my heart. You know what? Um, it's a Spurgeon, the, the heart is an idol yeah. factory. Like that's just what happens. Our hearts make up things to worship, and you come to that point, and, that, and that's really hard to do. I'd say the same thing with rejoicing. Like truly seeing. The, the awesomeness and magnitude of God's grace mm-hmm. and mercy and love and Christ's work on the cross, like seeing that and, and not allowing all the craziness of the world and other things in the world to distract us, like recognizing that and being joyful in that. Like, yeah. So my, like, for me, it's really hard to do either one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so which one is it? Rejoicing or repenting? Which comes easier? For me, yeah. 
neither one of them come easy. Yeah. You know? I don't know if uh, Ron wrote the questions again. I don't know that Ron's going to like your answer. Yeah. He's a teacher. He, want, he wants an answer. He wants an answer. But, I, but I, I've got to agree with Grant. Um, and, and I would even say this. I think they go together. I think the more you practice one, the more the other will flow. So if I'm practicing repentance... Um, it's more likely that I will also be rejoicing. And in rejoice, like if my rejoicing is actually anchored in Jesus, that's probably going to lead me to more like healthy repentance. Not repentance motivated by guilt and shame, mm. but repentance that's motivated by the grace of the gospel and the kindness of God. So I think, I think they go together and I think they strengthen each other. If I'm rejoicing, I'll be repenting. If I'm repenting, I'll be rejoicing. But I think when one is weak, that deficiency will show up in the other mm. one as well. Yeah. 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 So uh, one last question, I guess, or kind of two last questions for, for MCs. Um, what's something from this sermon in particular uh, that you can take uh, throughout the rest of the week to remind yourself uh, of God's greatness and to be able to rest in Him, uh, to rejoice in Him? Um, anything from this. It can be something that was said on the video. It can be something maybe you guys talk about in your MCs. Um, but take something from this uh, and write it down. Uh, and what can you take out of this throughout the rest of the week to remind yourself to uh, rejoice in God? And then just one last question just for the whole series as a whole, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a brand new thing for us here yeah. at Fuller. You know, like, how has this been beneficial to you guys? Um, how has this been beneficial to your family, uh, to your MC? Um, how has this helped calm nerves like to just rest in God and see that um, and let us know you know yeah. there's emails on the website let us know how we can make this better I guess yeah so that'd be good that'd be good so normally when uh, we've I don't know that we've really been praying on camera a whole lot because sometimes yeah. it feels like well we're praying for something future like yeah but maybe we should maybe, uh-huh. maybe just to kind of wrap the series just yeah. if you'd be willing even just yeah. to kind of acknowledge just collectively as a family, we don't rest well, we're not, we don't practice being still well, mm-hmm. we don't naturally trust, we don't naturally rejoice. And so maybe asking our Father to uh, help all of us to strengthen our hearts and kind of incline our hearts that way. And yeah. maybe even we can repent together too. And yeah, yeah just thank God for His grace. You'd be all totally. right doing that. Yeah, right. I can do that. Let's pray. Father God, uh, just lift up uh, just all of the Pillar community um, right now. Um, God, for all the leadership, uh, for everyone that is out scattered throughout the world, uh, the people in our, our family, the people outside of our family, God, I just lift everyone up and, and pray that you would um, give us strength to be able to rest in you. Um, God, we recognize if we look down deep in our souls that we don't do that easily. We don't repent. Uh, we don't rest in your mercy, in your grace, and in your work. God, we try to find things um, that would save ourselves. Um, God, we repent of that disbelief in who you are and your goodness. God, we pray that you would reveal yourself evermore every day uh, to us as we walk out our our daily lives. God, show us your mercy and grace so that we can rest in you. God, when when our hearts uh, falter and when our hearts are, are weary and we're down, God, may you be present in our lives and we could see you clearly uh, to be able to lean into you and rest in who you are. Um, God, we pray that you you would show us yourself evermore every day. And God, during this um, season, while we're all separated and, and scattered about, 
God, I pray that you would give us um, just a peace about what is happening in this world, knowing that you are sovereign over all creation and that you have um, a plan that everything will work together for your glory and for our good. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks.